There is, therefore, no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all are one. This word 2,000 years ago was a radical one. It was an idea and a concept that had never been heard before, at least not in Paul's immediate circle and certainly not in the Galatian church. Paul was writing to remind them that in Christ Jesus, in their faith in God, they were no longer to be separated by race or, or sex or, or economic distinction. It's a radical word. In Paul's day, slaves were needed as part of the economic movement of the ruling country. Women were pushed aside, marginalized, forgotten, used, and then thrown aside. Race was a way to determine whether one was in or out. Today, we've made major strides. We've worked hard for equality, especially in this great country. And yet even still, this word is a difficult one to see in practice. If you're not sure about that, take some time this week, start tomorrow, and read the front page headlines of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every day for a week, and you'll see that racism is still alive and well in our country. You'll see that there are still problems of inequality. And despite all that, though, despite the fact that we have a long way to go, First Community Church has been, since our inception, a place where all are welcome, a place where we seek to listen to questions, to hear truth from any source, to be united together in our faith and our search and our journey, recognizing that when we gather in this place, some of us may come filled with doubt. Others may come full of, of faith, hearts overflowing with joy at being alive in the Spirit, and maybe most of us somewhere in between. This church has always stood with open arms open hearts, open minds, ready to welcome any, any and all. This indeed is the church of the infinite quest, a place of faith where questions are welcomed, where love and grace define who we are. As I noted last week, this openness to truth comes not from the outside, but from our own sacred texts. We listened last week to Jesus' first sermon. Today we heard a sermon from Acts chapter 17. It's Paul's sermon given in, in the Areopagus. The Areopagites were a, a, a group of, of Greek intellectuals, poets, some of them politicians, all of them brilliant in their own way, where they would gather together to debate new ideas. Paul comes in preaching Jesus and he kind of freaks them out a little bit. Some of them say, we're interested in this. Others say, you sound a little bit crazy. But did you hear the quotes that he used? They sound like they come from the Bible, but they actually were not. The first one was, for in God we live and move and have our being. Those are the words of the Greek poet Epimenides. And by the way, if I'm saying that wrong, that's the way I'm saying it today. Epimenides lived 600 years before Jesus. He wasn't a convert to Judaism. He wasn't from Israel. He was a Greek poet, a brilliant intellectual mind from outside of Paul's normal circle of reading. He also quotes from Aratus, a man who lived 300 years before the time of Christ. For we are God's offspring. Do you see what Paul has done? He's taken words of their own poets and brought them into the Areopagus there on that, on that strange outcropping of rock in the city of Athens where all these bright intellectual minds gather and using their own their own 
history, their own truth, illustrates for them the God that these write about is the God I'm here to proclaim, the God who knows you and loves you and welcomes all. Paul's Paul's brilliant sermon in Athens opened a, a, a door for dialogue, discussion, for more. Our church's history really reveals that we've, we've practiced this same sort of thing. Do you know that we were called, speaking of open doors, we were called 100 years ago the church of the open door. Have you heard that nickname for us? It's kind of a cute one. It's theologically appropriate to who we are, yet it really didn't come out of our theology as much as it came out of a practical approach to our neighbors. You see, 100 years ago, there were no other churches in our neighborhood. There were no other real public buildings that were available for use. And so what would happen is people in the, in, in the surrounding area would come over to us and say, you know, we want to have a meeting tonight of our neighborhood association. Could we use one of your rooms? Of course you can. Thank you. Come on in. Other people would come and say, oh, we need some chairs for a meeting we're holding in our backyard. Could we borrow some of your chairs? Of course you can. Well, eventually the minister and the secretary got tired of being down here all the time, helping people get chairs or rooms to use. And so they just said to the whole community, you know what? Our doors are always open. We'll just leave them unlocked. Y'all come when you need space. Y'all come get some chairs if you need that too. And then the nickname came, the Church of the Open Door. It's both theologically and practically appropriate to who we are. It came as a result of our action in the community. We've always had a sound intellectual theology, but just as important, perhaps more so, has been our practice, our willingness to help our neighbor, to do anything we can to care for those in need. By the way, I want to let you know this. Uh, One of the events that we helped to organize 100 years ago, provided chairs and tables and things for, was something that was called the field day. Have you heard about the field day that used to be held nearby here, not too far from here? It was a gathering of of all the families, uh, uh, young men, young women, Older and everybody in between was, was invited. And in the morning, they'd start with maypole dancing. There'd be games and fun things for the children to do. They'd bring food and share food with each other. In the afternoon, there are all kinds of events. One of them was a baseball game between the married men and the single men. I, no, no record is shown of who won that game, by the way. Another event that they held at, had at the end of the day was a 50-yard dash for men over 200 pounds. Again, no records of how that turned out. <laughs> Not quite sure how that worked. Kind of a fun thing, though. Well, this sermon, this sermon series title, The Infinite Quest, comes from the remarks of Reverend Licklider, who was the minister of First Congregational Church. Listen to what he said about First Community. This is what he said leading up to his conclusion that we are the church of the infinite quest. He said, there was nothing casual in the choice of the name for this church. The church was not imposed upon the community, but has grown up out of its heart. I love that phrase. It has grown up out of its heart. It seeks to become the corporate expression of community. It seeks to meet in all its varied activities the social, intellectual, and spiritual needs of the community. Our name grew up out of the heart of our neighborhood. We became the church that was always open always ready to care for another. We grew up out of the heart of the community. That is who we were, and it is who we are. Now, is there room for growth and improvement and, and, and modification? Of course, of course. But that is who we are, and that is who we will be in the immediate future. In fact, I want you to know there's a spirit here in the air that's, that is rather remarkable. You no doubt heard last week that our, our board took a vote 
to go ahead and break ground on the new sanctuary that's going to be built on our North Campus. I wish you could have been in the boardroom when we were meeting. There was a spirit at work there. It was just amazing to watch. Oh, there were, there, were some, there were some hard questions. There were some tough things to look at and to review and to be sure about how we understood this and that and the financing and all the rest. Went on for about 45, 50 minutes. Very open-ended questions, open conversation, good spirit in the air. And when we took the vote, it was unanimous. And then spontaneous, loud, and long applause just broke out. I, I got to tell you, I'm a preacher's kid. I've been in the church my whole life. I don't get goosebumps very often because I've kind of been around once or twice. I got goosebumps on my goosebumps in that board meeting. It was so exciting to feel that spirit at work. But here's the thing. We need to be clear. Our North Campus Sanctuary, much like our South Campus Sanctuary, is going to be a jewel. It will be a beautiful building. It will be a sacred, feel very sacred and appropriate for worship while also having all the latest technology that we could imagine to have to help us in our worship. But truly, we aren't just depending on a building. Have you seen the movie Field of Dreams? Do you remember the movie Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner? It's one of the greatest movies of all time, as far as I'm concerned. I've seen it 17 times. I've cried 17 times. It always ends the same way every time I watch that movie. But it's not true. If you build it, remember the tagline? If you build it, they will come. It's not true. At least it's not true in the church. There's a tendency to say, okay, we've built this. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Now everyone wants, everyone wants to come and be a part of our congregation, right? Isn't this great? Well, maybe for a while, but really, it's primarily a tool. It's a mission station. It's a place where we'll gather on Sundays and other days during the week to be inspired, occasionally challenged, and then sent out into the world to serve. It's a place where, as David Hett said in his beautiful pastoral prayer this morning at the nine o'clock service, where we will breathe in the peace of God and breathe out the love of that same God, sent out into the world to share peace and love wherever we are found. We'll be tempted to think that we're done with the new building. That will be the place to begin to begin our new era. As I said, there are remarkable signs everywhere. Christy Glazer is our coordinator of new member engagement. She, along with my wife, Julie, have invented something they're calling the Open Door Ministry. They invited a number of folks to gather with them on a Saturday morning over egg casseroles and, and some muffins to talk about how do we create a spirit of welcome and joy in our, on both of our campuses, in our, in our church. You know, it takes more than just being outside and saying, hey, glad you're here today. By the way, we have a spirit of joy and welcome. We're glad you're here. It feels just a little bit, you know, not quite. You want that to be a natural feeling, a natural part of who we are. They had 80 people on a Saturday early to come and learn about how to do this. Christy's got another 15 or 20 on a waiting list who couldn't be there that day. Do the math. That's 100 people in our church who want to do all they can to be sure that we are indeed known and experienced as. A church that is open and welcome. A place where the Spirit of God is at work. Uh, I know. That might not sound like much. But maybe you remember. Back in the spring, I preached a sermon based on Psalm 51. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. A right spirit can change your life and mine, and it can change the life of this congregation. The right spirit in place can take us to places we never imagined if we let God's spirit take hold of us 
in new and exciting ways. I've seen this at work, you know. A few years ago, I led a mission trip to South Africa. There's 14 of us on this trip. We went into a place called East London. It's on the very southern tip of the African continent. We built an AIDS hospice there for AIDS victims. It was a beautiful trip and an amazing experience. But one part of it was we traveled out into a very remote part of South Africa. I, I could not tell you how to get there, but the name of the little village that we drove to was Knapp's Hope. It was established by a missionary from England named Knapp 140 years ago. Tiny little village, not more than three or 400 people who lived there, but they gather for church every Sunday. And so on my little mission team, all 14 of us, we gathered with them. We packed into a sanctuary about half the size of ours, and there must have been 300 people just crammed in there. It was 99 degrees and humid outside. It was 109 or so inside, but it was amazing. Beautiful experience. Well, the pastor, Pastor Cote, the leader of the church said, Pastor Glenn, since you are here, why don't you give a sermon? I'd never given a sermon to people who don't speak English before. And he said, that's okay, I'll, I'll translate for you. In the middle of my sermon, I was just kind of rambling on, and I realized in the back of my mind, if these people spoke English, they'd have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and all of a sudden, in the middle of that very boring sermon, all the women in the church stood up, and they started singing and dancing and singing and dancing. They had little handmade drums they were beating. And I, I stood back from the pulpit, and I went over to the pastor, and I said, Pastor Cody, um, what's happening? And he said, in a loud whisper, when the sermon is boring, they dance and sing. <laughs> he said, you'll have one more chance. Well, we got through the sermon, and then it came time to take the offering. I wish you could have seen it. I wish you could have been there to watch those folks. They don't take the offering like we do here. They bring their offering forward, and they place it on the communion table. And as they do, they sing and they dance. The women first, then the men, then the children. They had, most of them had nothing more than a few pennies, tiny little coins. Pastor Cote said to me afterwards, we do not have many material things, but we have an abundant generosity of joy. I've seen what can happen when the Spirit takes hold of a congregation I, I, I do believe that same spirit of joy is present and alive in our, in our church. Maybe we're not going to dance anytime soon. Every time I start doing this in the pulpit, my staff comes up to me afterwards and says, don't do that anymore. Would you stop that, please? But it means as a church, we're ready to move forward to this new era, and we're willing to do whatever it takes to be sure our neighbors know that when we say we are open and welcoming, we mean it. Remember, one of the high points of our history when we really took on this issue of inclusion? It's back in 1999, I think, late 90s. The issue of same-gender covenant ceremonies was brought up. We entered into a very careful and thoughtful process. There was disagreement, but there was open discussion. In the middle of all of that, about a month before the vote was taken, I was down in Atlanta serving a church down there, and we were in the middle of our, our stewardship campaign, and I had already invited Dick Wing. Do you remember Dick? I think you remember Dick. <laughs> I had already invited Dick Wing to come down and be our closing speaker. You know, that at the end of the stewardship campaign, we really want people to make a big pledge, and I said, Dick, come down and fire us up and excite us and tell them they need to give more. And boy, he did, and he came down. It was great, as you can imagine. And then that night, my wife, Julie, and I went out with Dick and Shirley for dinner. And I have Dick's permission to share this with you. He was the most vulnerable I've ever seen him. He was worn out. 
He said, this is the toughest year I've ever faced in my life. I can't even begin to say anything. This is my good friend, my mentor. That's who this church has been, though. We've always had the courage to take on whatever issues are before us. Anytime I, I speak to a group of seminarians or young ministers who are just entering out into their, into their careers, I always tell them about what Dick did with this church and the courageous way he led and the courageous way this congregation took on a difficult and controversial topic with a full voice of inclusion. That is one of the highlights of our history. Now, I need to say this. I, I've, been, I've been bragging a lot this morning. If you're a guest or visitor today, please know I'm the new guy. I just started here. So I'm kind of excited about this church, okay? So forgive me for, for bragging just a little bit. I'm just thrilled to be in this great congregation. But today's scripture, however, serves as a reminder. As a reminder of who we are and who we're called to be as we move forward into the future. You see, there's a tendency when, when a change takes place to kind of go back. Well, this is nice, the change has happened, but now let's, let's pull these things from the past back into the future. Let's, let's continue that, even though it's a, a new day, a new change. If, if you heard Deb Lindsay's sermon series back in February on transitions, uh, you know what I'm talking about. She did a brilliant job of describing how sometimes when a change happens, we, we tend to maybe even get depressed, descend into chaos, get a little bit worried and frightened, and so we grab onto things that may no longer be real or helpful just as a way of sort of holding on to something while this change takes place. I can illustrate it like this. When, when Julie and I had our first son, we were thrilled to welcome him into the world. Julie had had a miscarriage. She'd had a tough, tough, tough time with the pregnancy. But when Nate finally came, that little bundle of joy, we were so excited and thr thrilled. Just couldn't, couldn't believe how much excitement there was in our house to finally have this little boy join us. On the fourth night, after he'd been up all night, four nights in a row, I called the hospital. And I got the nurse, who, and I said, do you remember me? I'm Mr. Miles. Oh, yes, I remember you. Your wife was here. Yes, yeah. How's the baby? Uh, he cries a lot. <laughs> she said, Mr. Miles, babies cry, and she hung up the phone. <laughs> yeah, but you see what happened? We were thrilled to have this little guy in our life. It was exciting. It was wonderful. It was joyous. And all of a sudden, four days in, we realized we're not just going to go out to dinner at the drop of a hat. We're not going to stay up till 11 o'clock and sleep till 7 and have a nice eight hours of sleep and then go on to our... No. I'm telling you this like it's something you don't know. But see, that's sometimes what happens with change is we try to reach back into the past and, and see if we can pull something forward. You see, in, in the Apostle Paul's church in Galatia there, and by the way, Paul would have amened Deb's sermons, He's got a serious problem. You see, the church, the Galatian church, has decided that before uh, any men can join the church, they must be circumcised. This is the worst church growth idea ever. <laughs> Jim, that's all I have to say about this. It's a terrible idea. However, it had been part of their Jewish tradition. Paul's not anti-Jewish, but what Paul sees them doing is building walls, putting up barriers, limiting God's grace. He's saying to them, don't you know that in Jesus, all those walls and barriers and things that exclude and divide have been torn down, knocked down forever. We are one. There's no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. We are one, one human family. 
but they were reverting back to their old way. Now, I know, you probably didn't wake up this morning thinking, I wonder if we're going to talk about circumcision in the, in the sermon. <laughs> but Paul is furious with them. You read back at the, the start of chapter 3, he says, you foolish Galatians. Why is he angry? Because it's been the practice of the church then and for 2,000 years to kind of get exclusive, to kind of decide who's in and who's out. He wants to make sure they understand that there are no limits on the grace of God. The church stands on the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and nothing else. There is no greater failure for a church than to refuse to be open to any and all. Which leads to a question. Are we willing to carefully review who and whose we are? Are we ready to stand on our amazing history and look forward into the future with whatever faith we have enough to muster? Have you heard of the Trinity Church in New York City? It's very close to the site where we were attacked we Americans were attacked on 9-11, right by where the Twin Towers used to stand. In the four years after the attacks, the senior minister of that church, Reverend Cooper, says that four million people came to their doors to see their ministry, to witness the way they had taken care of their neighbors in that terrible and horrible day. But the pastor, he said, you know what? They come as tourists but I want them to leave as pilgrims. I want them to come and into my church see what happened when the church of Jesus Christ reach out to neighbors regardless of their faith or their background, their politics, their heritage, their race, or anything else. And I want them to come as tourists but leave as pilgrims transformed so that they might go out into the world and transform the world. It's time to announce. It's time to be clear. Tourist season is over. We have been called by God to be pilgrims of our faith, to bring the unwavering, wide open welcome of God's love to all of this great world, this great land in which we live, to let the faith that formed us, the history that has strengthened us, and the vision that is before us to guide us in everything we say and do. May we leave behind tourism and become the ones that God is calling us to be. Amen.